Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 29, Sermons for the Sun, The Five Theological Orations. If Athanasius' On the Incarnation was the first classic work of the Nicene period, then the Five Theological Orations is the last. While not as well known as Athanasius' masterwork, the Five Orations are a classic statement of Nicene doctrine and spirituality. And, in very good news for tired church history podcasters who had to write this episode during the Christmas rush, they are mercifully short. Quick reading. It's really kind of amazing. Gregory of Nazianzus manages to say as much in five sermons as it took his confreres hundreds of pages to say. All of which is to make the point that, just like on the Incarnation, this is a work that is very much worth your time to read through in its entirety. Today, we'll just hit the highlights of Gregory's work to show you the genius of his thought, as well as its similarities to and departures from the other Cappadocians. The first oration begins with prolegomena. Gregory doesn't want to start with the Father, or with Genesis, or with salvation history. No, there is a much more fundamental question with which to begin. Namely, who should be doing theological work in the first place? The preconditions for theology is one of those deep, difficult questions that have caused so many different answers to arise over the centuries. Here is Gregory's answer. Probably not you. Who should be doing theology? Uh, Probably not you. Of course, he says it a little bit more nicely than that. Here is John McGuckin's translation, and I quote, Discussion of theology is not for everyone, I tell you, not for everyone. It is no such inexpensive or effortless pursuit. Nor, would I add, is it for every occasion or every audience. Neither are all its aspects open to inquiry. It must be reserved for certain occasions, for certain audiences, and certain limits must be observed. It is not for all people, but only for those who have been tested and have found a sound footing in study, and more importantly have undergone, or at the very least are undergoing, purification of body and soul. For one who is not pure to lay hold of pure things is dangerous, just as it is for weak eyes to look at the sun's brightness. End quote. Now, you will note that Gregory has artfully steered away from telling any of his listeners that they are not supposed to study theology. Like a good public speaker, he is bringing his audience into the shared illusion that they are all thoughtful people, people of learning and holiness, and surely sophisticated folks like them can handle what most people cannot. But Gregory's standards are actually quite a bit higher than most of his audience could hope to match. You had to have a solid educational background in Greek literature and philosophy, which automatically restricts theology to the elite members of the population. They're the only ones who could have that kind of education. More importantly, you have to have an experience of God. You must be purified, or at least on the way to moral purity, and you have to personally know the God of whom you are attempting to speak. For Gregory, this probably meant that the folks most qualified to speak of God were ascetics. 
monks and others who could retreat from public life to dedicate themselves to this kind of experiential knowledge. Is Gregory being an elitist here? Well, undoubtedly. But it's not enough to just call him an elitist and dismiss him. We have to ask why he thinks theology is the province of this elite. The reasons appear to be twofold. First of all, if you want to talk about God, you have to be able to read for yourself what others have said about God in texts and in what God has revealed in the biblical text. You have to be able to think critically about what a text is saying to you. And you have to be able to reason carefully about it so that you aren't led astray. You need an education to do those things. Nobody is just born with those abilities. But of course, there is only so far that words can take you. For Gregory, like the other Cappadocians, insists that God is incomprehensible to us. That makes talking about God dangerous, especially if you haven't had any direct contact with God. It is very easy to become overconfident and say too much. So the learned elite must also be spiritually elite. They must have made progress in virtue and prayer so that they can respect the proper limits of theology. This is precisely where the Eunomian's fault lies. It's not just that Eunomius thought he could comprehend the nature of the Father. By doing so, Eunomius treated theology as though it were a discipline of mere logic, with rules that could be picked up and used by anyone just like one can learn the rules of addition or division. Thus, his followers have thrown theology into a mess by flinging open the doors to all comers who do not have the tools or character to respect the discipline. The rest of the first oration is a plea to the Eunomians to abandon their teacher and join Gregory in doing theology the proper way. But Gregory must not have made too many converts with that speech, because he had to give four more of them. Oration number two is up next, and it is a tour de force of apophatic theology. Gregory begins by discussing the nature of God and establishing that God is both incorporeal and infinite. Now, these were not exactly controversial theses, everybody in this time period, from almost all of the anti-Nicenes to the most unreconstructed modalists, thought God was incorporeal and infinite. Nevertheless, Gregory starts here. Why? Well, for several reasons. The first is that Eunomius himself may well have been one of those people who believed that God wasn't infinite. The second, and the most amusing, is that Gregory wants to flex on the Eunomians for a bit. In this oration, he argues the exact same way he has complained the Eunomians argue, by piling up lots of little arguments and logical paradoxes designed to lead somebody to his inevitable conclusion. Gregory straight up tells his audience that he finds this procedure kind of tedious, but he does it to prove that he can do it too. He is still establishing his reputation in the city. He needs the Eunomians to know that he too is not without powers of logical deduction. The third reason Gregory starts here is because he thinks that we can prove God's incomprehensibility from these two attributes. Take, for example, the fact that God is completely incorporeal. Can our minds conceive of anything truly incorporeal? Well, no, Gregory argues. We are bodily creatures, and even when we think of abstract concepts, we can't help but use the material world to make sense of them. When we imagine love, we don't really imagine an abstract concept. Maybe we can represent the concept in words, but when we have to imagine it, we think of a parent caring for their child, or a spouse running out in the storm to get soup for a loved one, or a feeling of warmth in our hearts. Because feelings come with our bodies, remember? Feelings 
are bodily and corporeal too, in Gregory's eyes. Or perhaps we even think about one of those videos about how lots of cheetahs and zoos are really, really anxious, so the zoos give them emotional support dogs to help them adjust. That, that, that is real, by the way. Go look it up. It'll make your day. Gregory is not saying that understanding things this way is bad, mind you. He's just saying that that's how humans are. We are embodied creatures. We can only understand the world as embodied creatures. It just means that when it comes to understanding God, who is disembodied, our nature presents something of a problem. We simply cannot grasp God entirely. We will always interpret God in a corporeal way at least a little bit. And that means we cannot know God's being as it is. Our minds will always distort it a bit. Gregory also takes some time in this oration to go through all the examples of people seeing God in the Bible and argue that no, they didn't comprehend the divine essence either. Moses just saw God's back, not God's face. Abraham saw God disguised as a man, not the raw, undiluted divine essence. Paul was caught up to the third heaven, and I don't know, maybe he saw God, but if so, he sure can't talk about it because he can't put it into words. Why do you think you're better than St. Paul, you know me, etc., etc. Perhaps you aren't yet convinced, though. Perhaps you are still thinking you can succeed where so many luminaries have failed. Okay, Gregory says. Let me take you on a little journey. Gregory walks us through all the mysteries of creation, from the plants of earth to the wonders of the sea to the mysteries of the heavens. If you can understand all this, Gregory says, then maybe you can understand God. But you can't, can you? And if you can't even know everything there is to know about this finite world, what hope do you have of understanding its infinite creator? It's a beautiful point, and very well made, but he also spends a super long time making it, so I'm just going to skip over the details and move straight into Oration 3, which is where the actual doctrine of the Trinity starts. Now, Gregory tells us that there are three views of the divine, atheism, monotheism, and polytheism. Another translation here, by the way, is anarchy, monarchy, and polyarchy. It's that word arche that means source or principle, can also mean God, that Gregory is using here. Now, pagan Greeks alternated between the atheism of the Epicureans and the polytheism of traditional Greek religion. Both of these involve a view of the universe as a fundamentally chaotic place. In atheism, there is no god to order the universe at all. What happens is simply the product of natural laws and chance. It's anarchy. Polytheism involves a bunch of different gods who argue and disagree and get into fights, and generally just make a mess of things. As you can imagine, that makes the world also kind of a chaotic place to live in. There is no one standard that governs everything. The world state is simply a consequence of the whims of whatever deity happens to be paying attention that day. Now, at this point, you can practically imagine that the Eunomians are going to be yelling at their scrolls, But don't you see you've refuted yourself, Gregory? What is your fancy trinity doctrine but the dressed-up polytheism you despise? You are hoist on your own petard, gotten a taste of your own medicine. My, my, how the tables have turned on you. But if they continue to read after their paroxysm of self-congratulatory rage, they will find to their irritation that Gregory has anticipated this argument. Gregory tells us that monotheism does not mean that only one person rules which is another way of saying monotheism does not mean that only one person is divine. 
Because after all, just having one person ruling doesn't guarantee order. What if the one god is always changing his mind? Then you would have all the same caprice and disorder that you had in polytheism. No, what makes monotheism is the unity and harmony and identity of action that unites the three persons of the Trinity. It is precisely because Father, Son, and Spirit always act in perfect harmony and union with each other that Christianity is monotheistic. Or, to put it another way, that Christianity preserves the monarchy. But paradoxically, worshipping one God who was always changing his mind would be less monotheistic than Trinitarian Christianity is. So, Gregory says, his position is just this, that the One, that is the Father, is parent of the Son and originator of the Spirit in a serene, non-temporal, and incorporeal way. Those adjectives are important. They are specifically chosen to refute all the dumb objections of the Eunomians that Gregory knows are coming for him. And come they do. Most of the rest of his speech is dedicated to refuting the Eunomians' objections to his position. You're already familiar with many of these arguments. The Eunomians will ask, as Arius did before them, when was the Son begotten? After all, if he was begotten, he must have had a beginning. And if he had a beginning, then he's not eternal. And if he's not eternal, he's not equal with the Father, who is eternal. Similarly, they will say, was the Son begotten of the Father? Well, if so, then the Father must have changed to beget the Son. After all, at one point the Father was begetting, and then at another was done begetting. That sure sounds like a change. And since the Father doesn't change, the idea that the Son was begotten is nonsensical. To which Gregory says that the Eunomians don't know what they are talking about. To be fair, neither do the pro-Nicenes. The difference is that Gregory's side at least knows that they are ignorant. The problem with the Eunomians is that they don't realize when they are at their wit's end. And this is where the importance of the first oration comes in. God does not experience time as past, present, and future in the way that creatures do. God created time, and hence transcends time. So to ask when the Son was begotten is a category error. It is to imagine God in the same way that one would imagine creatures. Just the same with the idea of change in God. Sure, material creatures change when they beget offspring. Just ask anyone who has had children, and they will tell you all the ways they have changed because of their children. But God is not a creature. We cannot assume that the Father changes in causing the Son just because that's what creatures do. The way Gregory responds to Eunomian objections makes the point of his first two orations clearer. As you have heard me say before, it's pretty common for people to complain about the Cappadocians and about early Christians in general that they are way too hard on the body. The story goes that they think all bodies are bad and gross, and the point of religion is to ignore or deny your body so you can focus on the spirit instead, and spirit usually meant rational mind. When Gregory talks about how the theologian has to leave the world of sense behind and train their minds to see God, you can picture that critic rolling their eyes and saying, here we go again. There Gregory is, just disowning the body and acting like our humanity is a hindrance to holiness. Did he ever think that God gave us bodies for a reason, huh? Did you ever think of that, Mr. Sainted Theologian Man? Well, Gregory has thought of that, and the way he refutes the Eunomians shows that his critique of materiality is actually much more limited than critics make it out to be. His problem is not that the Eunomians have bodies. His problem is not even that the Eunomians take care of their bodies. His problem 
is that the Eudonians are so arrogant, they believe they have figured out God simply by observing the created order. They don't get that the spiritual world has different laws than the physical one, which is why they wind up thinking that they know a lot more than they do. In other words, the Eunomians are not ancient hippies who want to get too close to nature and know their bodies to see God. They're a lot more like the ancient equivalent of that guy in your freshman philosophy seminar who thought he had solved all of philosophy because he'd taken two classes in his unrelated major and now thought he knew everything about everything. There's a profound arrogance in that assumption, and it is that arrogance Gregory wishes to critique in his opponents. Now, this oration does not just consist of tearing down the Eunomians. Gregory also makes a few short statements that have come to guide Orthodox theologians ever since. First, Gregory offers a solution to the problem of how to interpret biblical passages relating to Christ that seem contradictory. Here's an example. On the one hand, Jesus talks about himself as being eternal, most famously in the Gospel of John, where he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Or you could even get it from the very first verse in John, in the beginning was the Word. But on the other hand, the Bible also describes Jesus as being born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem at a very specific time. So how do we reconcile these two? Well, Gregory gives us a simple rule. When you see the higher, or he calls them loftier, titles, you should apply them to Christ's divinity. When you see the lower or more human descriptors, those should apply to Christ as he is in the Incarnation. So in this case, you would say that the Logos, the Word, the second person of the Trinity, has indeed existed from all eternity, was in the beginning with God, was before Abraham. Meanwhile, the human body and soul that were united with the Logos did indeed begin around December 25th, 0 AD, in Bethlehem. Now, Gregory is not content to leave this matter as a dry theological rule. Ever the poet, he bursts out into praise of the wondrous mysteries of the Incarnation, and I quote, He whom presently you scorn was once transcendent over even you. He who is presently human was incomposite. He remained what he was. What he was not, he assumed. No because is required for his existence in the beginning, for what could account for the existence of God? Man and God blended. They became a single whole, the stronger side predominating, in order that I might be made God, to the same extent that he was made man. Gregory has tied the doctrine of incarnation to that of theosis, or divinization. We've talked about theosis before when we covered Athanasius, who famously said that God became man so that man might become God. Gregory is taking up that Athanasian motto in his poetry, reminding us that Jesus' humility the very humility that makes the Eunomians think he isn't fully divine, was done to make us divine. The implication being, of course, that if Jesus isn't as fully divine as the Father, then he can't make us divine. Gregory will take Athanasius' doctrine one step further by casting it into the form of a classic maxim. What is not assumed is not redeemed. What is not assumed is not redeemed. What Gregory meant by that was that in order for the Incarnation to save us, Jesus has to take on every aspect of our humanity except for sin. If Jesus didn't take on some part of ourselves, then that part would not be divinized. This rule would continue to guide Christological reflections for many centuries after Gregory's death, even down to our present day.
After dropping those dope phrases on his audience, Gregory decides it's time to take a break, so he ends the speech and rests. But soon enough, he's back at it with oration number four, which continues to defend the divinity of the sun by virtue of refuting eunomian accusations. You are familiar with most of the arguments because Basil and Gregory of Nyssa have already covered them, so we'll pass over most of that pretty quickly. What is new in this is that Gregory of Nazianzus expands his critique to include some side-eye against the modalists, especially, who else, that perpetually unpopular theologian, that kid nobody will sit with at the ecclesiastical lunch table, Marcellus of Ancyra. Gregory takes care to distance his own position from that of the modalists, and especially Marcellus's weird idea that Jesus will reign until the end of the world, and then will go back into the Father like one of those little Russian nesting dolls you can stack inside the bigger dolls. Gregory does this in large part, I think, because of his context. He is preaching in Constantinople, where the anti-Nicenes dominate, and where the pro-Nicene crowd is equated with modalism. Gregory needs to distinguish his beliefs from the toxic modalist position. Most of the rest of the oration consists of Gregory refuting various Eunomian interpretations of proof texts that we have already seen in the other Cappadocians. But there are a few new twists. For example, Jesus tells the rich man that, quote, no one is good save God alone, in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. How, the Eunomians ask, can you say that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, if only the Father is good? But, Gregory says, this argument proves too much. For it seems to prove that the Son is not good at all, which would make him not divine at all. Which is more than even the most hardcore Eunomian would want to say. Remember, everybody thought the Son was at least morally like the Father, even if different in substance. Far better to take Jesus as saying that true goodness applies to divinity and not humanity, rather than restricting it to the Father. The other thing that might be worth saying here, although Gregory doesn't say it, is that Jesus says no one is good but God alone, in other words, divinity. Jesus never says only the Father is good. But anyway, that's my point, not Gregory's. We get more refutations of Eunomian proof texts. Gregory also points out that Jesus is called Son precisely because he stems from the Father. In other words, it is a relational term that signifies their union with each other. But, of course, there is another relationship in the Trinity to be discussed. That is where we get to oration number five, in which Gregory moves from the Son to the Spirit. Now, Gregory is a pretty snarky guy, but he seems especially snarky in this oration. He tells us that the doctrine of the Spirit is especially difficult to discuss, and I quote, It is not just that men exhausted by discussion of the Son are more eager to take on the Spirit. They must have something to blaspheme, or life would be unlivable, but also that we become worn out by the quantity of issues. End quote. I love this shade. I can't say why, but the idea that there are some people out there jonesing for their next blasphemy before they get the spiritual shakes is deeply funny, and a worthy image for the greatest rhetor of the age to deploy. Which is why The Road to Nicaea is now brought to you by Compulsive Blaspheming Disorder Awareness. Do you or a loved one have symptoms you can't explain? Does seeing an authority figure fill you with rage? Is your friend compulsively monologuing at teachers whenever they are angry like they're a high school coming-of-age drama? Can you make it through 15 minutes of church without mentioning proof texts of the son's inferiority to the father? Compulsive blaspheming disorder, or CBD, is real, and it's serious, but treatment is available. Ask your doctor today about Cappadocia, 
the brand new Father and Deity Association approved treatment for CBD. Cabinocia may not be for everyone. Side effects include sick burns, likely reputation, and being preserved in your opponent's writings for all eternity. Ask your doctor about Cappadocia today. The first argument for Gregory to refute is that the Holy Spirit's full divinity would compromise the Son's status as only begotten. Gregory will say the same thing Basil did. The Holy Spirit is not begotten of the Father, but proceeds from the Father, which is a different relationship than begetting. How is it different? Good question. We can't know the difference between generation and procession, because to know that, we'd have to know the essence of God, which we cannot know. What we can know is that just because the Son and Spirit have different relationships of origin doesn't mean they aren't both fully God. Just as Adam had a son by the usual means while Eve was created out of his rib, so too the Son and Spirit can originate from God in different ways, but both be fully God. This leads Gregory to his next main point of contention. How do you say that there are not three gods when there are three beings you call God? Gregory has several responses to this. The first one, much to my delight, is the one that I wish Gregory of Nyssa had made back in his letter to Oblavius. If you acknowledge the divinity of the Son, but not the Spirit, then guess what? You are a ditheist by your own argument. Boom, just like that, the Numakatatoian argument is refuted. It's so easy! You don't need a whole long letter with a bunch of analogies, just point out that they're in the same hole as you are. Two, three, doesn't matter. But, of course, Gregory also has to refute the Eunomians, who deny the full divinity of the Son and the Spirit. So he must proceed onward to give an account to them as well. He compares the persons of the Trinity to three suns, that's S-U-N-S here, and a single light in between those stars. Just as there is one single light and three suns, there is one will, one power, in between the members of the Trinity. And just whose will is that? Well, Gregory doesn't go into this in the orations, but elsewhere he is clear that it is the Father. This is an interesting change of emphasis from Basil and Gregory of Nyssa, where they tended to emphasize the divine essence, or the substance being the point of unity among the three persons. And they weren't really clear about where that essence or substance originated from. It was just kind of a fourth thing in the Trinity. Now, for the Nazianzen, the source of unity is the Father. The Father originates both the Son and the Spirit and gives them every bit of his own power, will, and goodness. Now, Basil in particular will occasionally say something that is close to this, but Gregory is much more explicit about it. And I think we can draw some interesting comparisons between Nazianzen and the psychological analogy we first encountered in Tertullian. In the psychological analogy, the son was treated as the father's self-expression that was itself substantial, and the spirit was the sort of spirit of the word, the word being the son. In a similar way, Nazianzen emphasizes that the son and spirit come from the father and are thus inseparable from him. In some ways, they are simply aspects of the father's self-expression, even though they are substantial, distinct beings. Now, surely that is enough to take in, but there is yet another important part in this oration, which has to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit is never explicitly called God in the Bible. Now, that's different from Jesus, who is explicitly called God in John chapter 20, verse 28. So what gives? Why is the Spirit not called God in the same way if the Spirit is God in the same way? Well, first of all, 
because it has to do with God's plan of salvation. God did not reveal the whole Trinity to us at once because it would have been too much for us to take in. Instead, God revealed it gradually over the course of the ages of salvation so that we could slowly assimilate our knowledge of the persons as we were ready for it. The Spirit wasn't revealed until after the Son had already been revealed. But, if you want proof of the Spirit's divinity, look no further than the fact that the Spirit always shows up with Christ. The two are inseparable like only God can be. Moreover, the Spirit has a whole bunch of impressive titles that are only appropriate for God, like, you know, the Spirit of God, for starters. I mean, how could the Spirit of God not be God? Seems silly. But just as important is the Spirit's role in the process of divinization. Gregory puts it succinctly as Athanasius did before him. And here I quote from the fifth oration. Were the Spirit not to be worshipped, how could he deify me through baptism? If he is to be worshipped, why not adored? And if to be adored, how can he fail to be God? One links with the other truly a golden chain of salvation. From the Spirit comes our rebirth. From rebirth comes a new creating. From new creating, a recognition of the worth of him who effected it. End quote. In other words, only God can save us. So if the Spirit saves us, the Spirit must be God. Full stop. And with that, Gregory brings the orations to a triumphant conclusion. There are, of course, other writings, his and others, that continue to be produced to make the Nicene case. But none do so as succinctly as the orations, nor perhaps with such courage as these sermons, preached in the belly of the Homoian beast in Constantinople. And with that, we have completed our tour of the Cappadocian Fathers and their extraordinary theological visions. Now, at long last, our story can continue as Basil and the two Gregories bring the Nicene controversy to a definitive end as we prepare for the final exit off the road to Nicaea. At least, that's what I would say if I were telling you the conventional story. But, dear listener, the conventional story you have been told is a lie. If only by omission. For there are not three Cappadocians in our story. Oh no, there is a fourth. But the fourth is a name much erased from history, a name associated with the foulest villainy and rankest heresy. It is a name that Basil and the Gregories would have hated to see associated with their homeland. And yet, history takes little account of its subject's wishes. So join me, dear listener, as we delve into our next subject, the all-too-secret fourth Cappadocian, the heresiarch and hater that prevents any further progress down the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.